Well, good morning. Well, I'm optimistic. I'm optimistic about this sermon. Um, in final editing, I think I cut about five minutes out of corny jokes to save my children from endless embarrassment. I also, if it's going too long, I have my two daughters up here, although I won't be able to see their frowns underneath the mask, to know if the sermon is going south. But alas, um, one of my children was asking me a few weeks ago what we will be, uh, what I will be preaching on. And I said, I decided to select the text of uh, Psalm 2. We're going to preach on Psalm 2 this, this year. He said, well, didn't you preach on Psalm 1 last year? I said, well, yes, son, but I have a plan here. You see, if the Lord should tarry, if Jesus uh, delays his return, if they give me another 148 years, I'm going to preach through the Psalms. All right? So, uh, so Psalm 2. And this is, a, I think, a, a fitting psalm because it's a messianic psalm. It's a psalm that speaks of a king. As we've sung in our Christmas carols of the, uh, the birth of the newborn king. Well, we've come, as Jim said, to the last Sunday of 2020. And I can look out and I probably, there's probably not too many people here that are going to miss this past year. If December 7th, 1945 was declared by President Roosevelt to be a day that will live in infamy, perhaps they will look back on the year 2020 and say this was a year that will live in infamy. It's certainly been a year of disruption, chaos, and tragedy. Uh, we've seen, as they've described it, an invisible enemy that has killed over 300,000 of our countrymen and nearly 2 million around the world. In addition, the pandemic has caused economic hardships for, for millions as businesses have shut down. Life expectancy, they're saying, is actually going to decline this year. First time in, in, in decades that that's been the case. Alcohol, drug abuse, and suicides are unfortunately on the rise as people are separated from loved ones and from that sense of community. If I, as I look back on this past year, I just reflect upon, we've lost many dear saints here at ECC, many who are not with us today, uh, stalwarts in the faith, young and old. Um, it's been a sad year. And we've been limited into the, the degree that we can even have memorials for them, able to honor them as is due. And if the impact of COVID-19 was not enough, we've experienced significant division, racial tension in our country. It's escalated. The country has, has voted for new leaders after a tumultuous election year like no other I remember. Rodney King is no longer with us to ask the relevant question, why can't we all just get along? So it's in this context where we find ourselves that I've chosen Psalm 2 as our text for this morning. As we approach this transition to a new year, it's good to reflect upon our culture, the world around us, from God's perspective. But also it's good to examine our own hearts, isn't it? and to reflect upon the state of our soul. I believe God's word in this psalm can, can help us here, provide a healthy dose of God's perspective on our world and impart hope to the people of God as you seek to walk before the Lord in the new year. 
With that, would you stand for the reading of God's holy and inspired word? Psalm 2. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves, and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell the decree. The Lord said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now, therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son lest he be angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all those who take refuge in him. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. Let us pray. Father God Almighty, who sits in the heavens, I pray, Lord, that you would bless the preaching of your word today. I pray that you would provide hope for the people of God as they see that you have set your king on your holy hill of Zion. As they contemplate your purposes, as they reflect upon their own hearts, I pray that you would stir up within us a love for you and a desire to walk faithful before you all our days. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Please be seated. Well, it's interesting the way Psalm 2 begins here. At a time when we're singing about peace on earth, goodwill toward men, Psalm 2 is opening by describing a conflict. We see a noisy assembly that is said to be raging. I think of the raging of the ocean, some of the powerful waves if you've been there. And when we're talking about a noisy assembly, we're not talking about elementary school recess before COVID, that is. But rather, we're talking about a gathering of nations, of peoples, and more specifically, their rulers. These rulers, kings of the earth, they're holding a strategy session here. They're taking counsel together to plot and devise schemes against the Lord and his anointed, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. You see, what we see on full display is the rebellion of the nations against the king. Now, in the original context, this psalm is referring to King David. We know that from the New Testament. Whom God has anointed, has anointed David to be king over Israel and to shepherd the people of God to covenant faithfulness in place of King Saul, who was disobedient. Reading through the historical books of First and Second Samuel, we find David described as a man of war, fighting the enemies of Israel from every side. The Philistines, the Amalekites, the Syrians, the Moabites, the Ammonites, the Edomites. Did I miss any ites? 
I think that's the majority. Israel was called to be a light to the Gentiles and to be a blessing to all the families of the earth. We see all the way even back in Genesis 12. So to the extent, though, that which the surrounding nations were warring against the Lord's anointed, in this case, David, they were fighting against the Lord. But this conflict, we cannot simply limit to David living a thousand years before Christ, can we? No, this conflict goes all the way back to the Garden of Eden when our first parents sought to cast away the restraints of God and rebelled against their benevolent creator. When the Lord God pronounced a curse upon the serpent, he said, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. We see there the first promise of Christ our Redeemer as the seed of the woman who will crush the head of the serpent, winning the final victory. But throughout human history, this warfare and enmity has persisted between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. It did not end with David, for even the apostles of Jesus, what do they tell us? They saw in this psalm a description of the conspiracy to put Jesus the Messiah to death, death on a cross. And they also saw that as a sign of the hostility against the preaching of the gospel that was faced by the first Christians. We read their prayer in Acts chapter 4, where they, they pray, Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and earth and the sea and everything in them, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, Why did the Gentiles rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves, and the ruler were gathered, the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. For truly in this city, Jerusalem that is, there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and even the peoples of Israel, surprisingly, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. And now, Lord, Look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness. That's what the apostles prayed. So they looked back and saw this psalm as as significant for what was going on in their own day. So we should not be surprised if we see opposition to Christianity and against the church in our own day. For living under the rule of the Lord and the Almighty King is just too restrictive. It's too exclusive. We've heard for some, for many. And like our first parents, mankind still desires to cast off their restraints. They still desire to be their own masters. Truly, fallen humanity has a libertine spirit. And it's sad to see in the formerly Christian West where we have cast off the restraints of God's law and we delight ourselves by engaging in all forms of rebellion and all manners of perversion especially in the area of human sexuality. I see no place where the truth of God's law is further, is more under attack than in that area of sexuality today. The Apostle Paul's description of the unrighteousness of the Gentiles that he gives us in his letter to the Romans, I think is quite fitting to our own contemporary culture. Just listen to what he says in Romans 1, 28 through 32. And and I ask you, though, to to think not just what is the world like out there around us, woe is me, but also ask to the extent that some of these sins that he is describing have penetrated our own hearts 
As I'm asking myself, what extent have these sins, are they in me? Not just external, but internal. For Paul says, they did not see fit to acknowledge God. Since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossipers, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. How many more adjectives does he have here? Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. So I pray that as, as, as we've heard these things, a description of man and the rebellion, that, that the Spirit of God would enlighten our eyes to see maybe the ways in which we rebel against God's rule in our hearts. And sometimes we don't even know it. We don't even recognize it. Others can see it, but we don't always see it. So we've seen the rebellion of the nations, but I want you to secondly see in verses 4 through 9 the response from heaven. The response from heaven is the installation of a king. What is the Lord's response to this rebellion of the nations? Well, he's not dismayed, or he's not afraid of this all-out assault on his rule and reign. Instead, he who sits in the heavens laughs. He laughs. It might be surprising. He's amused... To find that he's amused that finite creatures think that they can muster the strength to defeat and overthrow the Almighty. He is the Lord God omnipotent who reigns. The sinful rebels, they justly deserve his wrath and displeasure. And in times like these, as this nation seems to be turning away from God and against its, Christ, against its Christian heritage, away from that, it's helpful for believers to catch a vision of God's perspective. On man's revolt. In addition to punishing those who break his laws, God in heaven responds by installing a king. He says in verse 6 As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. That is God's response to this rebellion is to set up a king. And when the Lord says, I have set, we're to take confidence in that about the outcome here about this warfare. As the Word of God tells us in Psalm 135, 5, 5 through 6, For I know that the Lord is great, and that our Lord is above all gods. Whatever the Lord pleases, He does, in heaven and on earth, in the seas and all the deeps. Psalm 115 echoes this thought where it says, Our God is in the heavens. He does all that He pleases. You see, as Nebuchadnezzar learned, none can stay the hand of God. God in his sovereignty responds to sinful rebels by establishing a kingdom. In the days of David, God established the Davidic monarchy and gave his people Israel rest from all their enemies, all those ites that I read earlier. The first mention of, of the anointed, is it talking about here the Lord and his anointed? is uh, all the way back in 1 Samuel 2, in Hannah's prayer. She, sa- she prays, The adversaries of the Lord shall be broken in pieces. 
That sounds like what we're going to read in Psalm 2. Against them he will thunder in heaven. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He will give strength to his king and exalt the power of his anointed. There it is. I believe that's the first time that the word anointed, from what we get our word Messiah, which later comes over into Greek as Christos. Christ is, Jesus is the Messiah. He is the anointed. He is the Christ of God. Now, back here in the time of David, unlike the reign of Saul, who rebelled against God and had his kingdom taken away, there are special promises made to David in the Davidic covenant. God makes a covenant with David and promises him an enduring dynasty. Of the son of David, the Lord says in 2 Samuel, Samuel chapter 7, I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever, and my steadfast love will not depart from him as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. So that's the promises that God was making to David, and that brings us to Christmas, doesn't it? Because we are celebrating now the coming of the king who shall rule over all earthly and spiritual powers forever. And this message came in first century in Israel, in Judah, despite the bleak outlook of Roman occupation and domination that the first century Jews faced, the angel Gabriel appears to a young virgin in Nazareth and announces she will have a child and that the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever and of his kingdom there will be no end. David's kingdom eventually came to an end and the people were cast into exile. But God is faithful to his promises. He is sending the king. This is the return of the king. We learn from Zechariah's prophecy that the Lord's plan is to raise up a horn of salvation in the house of his servant David to redeem his people. He says, The day spring or sunrise shall visit us from on high and give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. And so God establishes his kingdom by setting up his king, Jesus, the Son of God, who is truly God and truly human. He comes to people who walk in darkness and who face death. As the carol says, light and life, though to all he brings, risen with healing in his wings. And as this kingdom of God unfolds, heralded by John the Baptist and proclaimed by Jesus, we learn the terms of pardon and the terms of surrender that these warring nations, these warring peoples who sought to cast off God's restraint can now come into the kingdom. What is the term? Well, they proclaim, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. The long-expected Jesus comes to set his people free, but in a manner unanticipated. He does not raise an army to conquer the Romans and liberate the Jews from occupation, but rather he calls for repentance. And he spends the next three years with a small band of followers, the apostles, to teaching them and equipping them to build the kingdom. The kings of the earth seem to gain the victory, don't they? Because they take the Lord's anointed, they conspire and they put him to death, the horrible death of the cross. 
The serpent has bruised his heel in fulfillment of that prophecy in Genesis. But on the third day, the Lord raises him from death to life. Hallelujah. And he says, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. And after his death and glorious resurrection, before his ascension, he announces, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. He's been, he's, the Lord has set his king on Zion, his holy hill. And because he has all authority, he is commissioning us, as he did his apostles, to go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, not just the Jews, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things that he has commanded. And behold, he is with us always to the end of the age. The Lord Jesus Christ ascends to heaven, and he sits in a position to reign over all the nations at the right hand of the majesty, God on high. As the king, he sends out his disciples into all the world to make disciples of all the nations. And instead of destroying the rebellious nations that we saw back in verses 1 through 3, he subdues sinners through the gospel. Men come to faith, and they come to repent of their sins. And instead of being sinful rebels, they become part of his beloved They become his beloved children. The Great Commission teaches us that this involves not merely a one-time profession where we come to Christ, but it instead involves living a life of trust and obedience before this gracious Lord. We see Jesus again, this king, in Revelation. In Revelation, he is now enthroned in heaven and described as the ruler of the kings on earth. Hearkening back to Psalm 2, God the Father says to Jesus, his son, in verse 8 in Psalm 2, Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage, and the ends of the earth your possession. This is the inheritance. This is the Christmas present, if you will, that God the Father is giving to his son. It's the whole world. It's his. He will take possession of it. Is it possible that the father fails to give the inheritance that he promises to the son? No. Will evil and the serpent prevail? No. Good Christian, take confidence that every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. We share the gospel message today with those in our sphere of influence, with those whom the Lord brings into our path. So that people can come willingly and embrace Jesus Christ, the good and gracious King that He is. The long-expected Messiah. Lest they be dashed in pieces like a potter's vessel, lest they be broken with a rod of iron. Well, we've seen the rebellion of the nations, and we've seen the response from heaven, the installation of this King, the establishment of this kingdom. Now see the requirement that this psalm closes with. Reconciliation with the king. You see, the psalmist has, is kind enough to give us a warning, some friendly advice with you, Will, starting in verses 10 through 12 as we close out the psalm. He says, Now therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. What is this wise response that Psalm 2 reveals? Well, knowing that all attempts at plotting are vain and that resistance is futile... 
And the king has been given all authority in heaven and on earth. How shall we respond? Well, look, we'll look with the psalm. It says, uh, serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. So first of all, in terms of reconciling with this king, we need to commit ourselves to serve the Lord. Instead of rebelling against the king, we can change course. We can repent. And we can serve him. And we can serve him by looking at opportunities around us to serve, as it says in Matthew 25, the least of these. Knowing that when we serve those who are less fortunate than ourselves, that we are serving Christ, the King. We can rejoice in service to the Lord, for our labor is not in vain in the Lord. Unlike the vanity of the plotting that was described against him in the first three verses of this psalm. The labor that we do for the Lord is not in vain. It counts for all eternity. And I think if we're going to be servants of the king, think of a soldier. A soldier, soldiers of the king, what he is requiring in us, it takes discipline. Think about that as we approach the new year. About uh, what disciplines can we have in our life uh, to help us in our service to the king, to be faithful. Might require setting a little bit of time each day, whether it's in the morning or evening, to hear from God and his word, to own our dependence upon him in prayer, to look for opportunities to do good to those who are less fortunate, to serve him in whatever way he calls us. Secondly, he says, kiss the sun. The admonition to kiss the sun is the idea of paying homage to him. And Jesus, the son, surely is worthy of all blessing and honor and glory and power. And as it says in the Christmas carol, what child is this? We should bring him incense, gold and myrrh. Come peasant king to own him. The king of kings salvation brings. Let loving hearts enthrone him. We kiss the son when we bow in submission to him and pledge our loyalty and our faithfulness to him and him alone. Third, this psalm closes with these words. Blessed are all who take comfort in him, or to, who take refuge in him. And as this psalm closes out, it, it reminds us of God's mercy. If all we had mentioned here in this previous section about warfare were simply his wrath and being dashed to pieces like a potter's vessel, well, that would leave us with quite a terrifying picture, wouldn't it? That's not the uh, warm and fuzzy we were looking for, is it? But the closing of the psalm reminds us that our heavenly king, Jesus, is a refuge for the weary soul. God is a refuge. He's our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear. Our king brings blessing to all who, takes ref- who take refuge in him, it says. We're reminded that that the Lord, as he revealed himself to his servant Moses, he, uh, yes, God punishes evil, but he seeks to emphasize to us and to you that the Lord, the Lord is a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, Exodus 34, 6. So as we close, as we approach a new year, where is your heart today? 
What areas in your life do you need to submit to the king? Is there an area in your heart where you are seeking to cast off restraint and join our enemies, that is the world, the flesh, and the devil, in opposition to the Lord and his Christ? We need to ask the Spirit to help us to submit to his will. Because truly, if we love him, we're going to desire to keep his commandments by his grace. Now, some of you may simply be anxious, uh, fearful about the future. And that seems very understandable considering the year that we've had. To you, Jesus, the good king, says this, Fear not, little children, for it is the Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom the kingdom established by the coming of Christ. And to close, I'd just like to close out by reading a small excerpt from Charles Spurgeon's devotion that he had on the evening of December 24th. He says, We anticipate the happy day when the whole world shall be converted to Christ, when kings shall bow down before the Prince of Peace, and all nations shall call their Redeemer blessed. We cannot read our Bibles without the conviction that Jesus shall reign wherever the Son does his successive journeys run. We are not discouraged by the length of his delays. We are not disheartened by the long period which he allots to the church in which to struggle with little success and much defeat. We believe that God will never suffer this world which has seen Christ's blood shed upon it to always be the devil's stronghold. Christ came hither to deliver this world from the detested sway of the powers of darkness. What a shout shall that be when men and angels unite to cry, Hallelujah, for the Lord God omnipotent reigneth. What a satisfaction will it be in that day to have had a share in the fight, to have helped to break the arrows of the bow, to have aided in winning the victory for our Lord. Happy are they who trust themselves with this conquering Lord and who fight side by side with him, doing their little in his name and by his strength. How unhappy are those on the, on the side of evil. It is a losing side, and it is a matter wherein to lose is to lose and be lost forever. On whose side are you? Let us pray. Our Father, we thank you for your word, which abides forever, for the encouragement it can bring us in dark days, those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death. But on us, O Lord, we rejoice that a light has come to shine, your Son and your coming kingdom. Even though the kingdom, there is a not yet dimension to this kingdom, where we do not yet see all things put right in his reign of justice and righteousness manifested to all, we pray that you would do the work, that your kingdom would come, O Lord, and that your your will would be done on earth as it is in heaven. Help us this day, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.